Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is Zachary Stacy, and I'm a clinical pharmacist at Barnes Jewish West County Hospital in St. Louis, and I will be your podcast host today. With me today is my good friend, Dr. Paul Dobesh, professor at the University of Nebraska College of Pharmacy. Dr. Dobesh is a fellow in the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Dr. Dobesh is an expert in cardiology, but more specifically, specializes in antiplatelet agents and anticoagulants, where he's been involved in hundreds of research projects, presentations, review articles, and books. We're lucky to have Dr. Dobesh on our podcast today. This episode is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and the series focuses on peripheral arterial disease. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing educational credit. Additional podcasts are available on this topic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Obesh. Well, thank you for having me, Zach. It's nice to be working with you. Uh, Likewise. Let's get started today talking about peripheral arterial disease. In our first podcast, we talked about epidemiology, pathophysiology, and the screening criteria for PAD. Now let's sort of transition into what does a typical presentation for PAD look like? It's a great question, Zach, because it's actually quite multifactorial. So I think a lot of times when we think of the traditional presentation, we think of patients who have intermittent claudication. And so what this is, is they get pain when they walk. You know, it's, it's much like the stable ischemic heart disease patient, right? They have a larger atherosclerotic plaque. And when their demand goes up, right, supply can't come up to meet it because of the atherosclerosis and they get ischemia. It's the same thing. It's just now on a skeletal muscle instead of the cardiac muscle. So when they walk and they use those large muscles in their leg, the demand goes up. And uh, because of the atherosclerosis and peripheral arterial disease, supply can't come up to meet it. And they get this pain in their legs. They sit down and rest and, you know, 10, 15 minutes, pain goes away. And well, that's the typical, there's a lot of atypical symptoms that go along with PAD. Patients may not get that leg pain, but they may have uh, a cold extremity or some hair loss on a certain leg or even a bluish tint into the leg. So really, it's, it's, it's the, really the signs and the symptoms here are connected to decreased perfusion because of the atherosclerosis associated with peripheral arterial disease. And so, you know, and actually, you know, we talk about, you know, doing an ankyobrachial index, just a simple test, but one of the easiest ways to diagnose the atherosclerosis. Peripheral pulses are also very good. Patients will have, um, may have a d- d- diminished peripheral pulse, whether it be in their posterior tibial or their dorsalis pedis. Once again, something that any pharmacist can take, can do, and it just really takes, you know, about a minute to, to do it. So many of these patients will be asymptomatic, and that's where we hope to maybe uh, use the screening criteria to identify the asymptomatic disease. But then when it gets to the point where they're experiencing intermittent claudication and those classic symptoms that you talked about, uh, we can use the ABI to sort of gauge the, the severity or the progression of the disease. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, as 
you probably have talked about with uh, with Dr. Trujillo that a you know an ABI less than 0.9 is considered diagnostic, but we know that there is data that's been over decades now that shows that the lower the ABI, the more the severity of the disease. And so you know you start getting an ABIs that hover around you know 0.5.4. You're now talking about somebody who has chronic limb ischemia. And, and those are patients that, you know, commonly get referred to re for revascularization therapy. So it, there's clearly a correlation to the ABI to severity of disease, severity of symptoms a lot. There's a little disconnection there, but as well as, uh, more, you know, long-term mortality. A study that went on for 12 years showed that, you know, that the, the worse your ABI, the, 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 the higher your mortality rates. Wow. So oftentimes when I'm flipping through charts in our computer system, I'll see patients get labeled as PVD, peripheral vascular disease. So what is the relationship here with PVD and PAD? Yeah, so this is some terminology we've tried to get much better at. So we used to call every, you know, we just used to always call it peripheral vascular disease. But in, in essence, right, peripheral vascular disease is any vessel. And so a deep vein thrombosis is peripheral vascular disease, right? So it doesn't differentiate very well. Even diseases of the lymphatic system in the legs is peripheral vascular disease. So what we, I think in the last, easily the last 20 years, we've gotten a lot better of making sure we call it peripheral arterial disease. Um, and I think sometimes there's just a slow transition <laughs> to the new terminology. Well, it's not that new. So yeah, I, I you know it's really is what we're talking about is arterial disease. We're talking about arterial pulsatile blood flow, and that's really it when we talk about peripheral arterial disease. And I like how you make the connection between PAD and CHD and that sort of the disease progression. Is it in you know when we think about cardiac disease, we often work patients up using the PQRS T system. Is it possible to use that or apply that to PAD patients? Absolutely. I think like, like we've said already, it's, 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 the, it's a very similar pathophysiology. And so the PQRST can be basically used to assess any disease state. It's exceptionally good for pain, right? But for precipitating factors, it's exertion, right? There's exertion yep. with, when you get chest pain and there's exertion when you get intermittent claudication, right? The palliative measures, right? What helps it go away? Resting, bringing that, that demand down, whether it be the cardiac muscle or the skeletal muscle, bringing that demand down to, to meet the diminished supply, the pain goes away. So that's very helpful. You know, it's, the, it's a, uh, you know, the quality of the pains actually, it's a kind of a squeezing, kind of a cramping that they feel in the skeletal muscles. You don't really get a cramping per se in your cardiac muscle, but it's still the squeezing and the tightness. You know, the read, it's got, you know, the different region, but it is, you know, within the leg muscles, it's going to be in the muscles that are, are not getting the, the adequate supply. And, uh, you know, the severity of the pain will vary, Severe, you know, whether it's cardiac pain or if it's the skeletal muscle pain, the severity is, you know, pain is subjective. You know, and so there's, you know, that can vary, but then the temporal pattern, right? Once again, you set down your rest and in five to 10 minutes, usually it goes away. So yeah, it, there, there's a tremendous amount of similarity because it's the same pathophysiologic process, just a different vascular bed. And so these patients have all the underlying problem here is peripheral atherosclerosis and, and all the peripheral atherosclerosis is leading to poor perfusion of the limbs. What are some of the risk factors that we're aware of that, that can lead to 
peripheral atherosclerosis? Well, it's, it's, it's almost kind of too obvious, right? So the thing to remember here is atherosclerosis is a systemic process. So if you've got atherosclerosis, right, the risk factors for atherosclerosis are pretty similar. It doesn't matter what vascular bed you're in, right? Right. It's the diabetes, it's the smoking, it's the dyslipidemia, the hypertension. Those are your modifiable risk factors. It, they're the modifiable risk factors if you've got coronary disease. They're modifiable risk factors if you have cerebral atherosclerosis. And they're modifiable risk factors if you have peripheral atherosclerosis. And of course, you're, you know, the age and gender associated with that. As we get older, atherosclerosis, you know, basically has takes pro, pro, to me, takes uh, takes decades to uh, present itself. Maybe a little bit longer in the periphery because we're just talking about larger arteries, so maybe a, a, a little longer age in presentation there. And then, of course, you can't beat your genetics, right? So if you've got a family history of early onset atherosclerosis, then guess what? You might also, and that's why that's also counted as a risk factor. So yeah. You know, those risk factors for atherosclerosis don't really vary very much across vascular beds. And so we do our best to manage things like diabetes, lipids, blood pressure, um, try to try to manage those more modifiable risk factors. The one that, that often comes up in discussion is homocysteine and whether or not that is a manageable or modifiable risk factor. What, what, what is your perspective on that? So, you know, so dating myself a little bit. Probably the early, late, the early 2000s, maybe the late 1990s, there was so much research, right? So as you point out, Dr. Stacy, you know, very astutely, you know, so these patients will commonly have a elevated uh, or homocysteine or hyper, hyper homocysteinemia, which is just a mouthful. But they, you know, so the question was, is this a risk factor or is this just a, a marker? And so there was just tons of study into, well, give them, you know, so we know, right? So the levels are high. We know we can lower the levels if we give them folic acid, B6, B12, what combination of that? I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars went into research on this basically about 20 years ago. And we learned that none of it works. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, we, you know, it's elevated and we can, lower it, but lowering it doesn't change their trajectory. So whether the fact that they've had it is a marker that it's, that it's happened, right? Or it's just a byproduct of the disease state. I don't know if it matters or we really know, but you know, the, the, the study of folic acid B6, B12 is just a, you know, is just a minefield of wasted hundreds of millions of dollars. So when we, as pharmacists, we tune into those disease states that are modifiable with medications, diabetes medications, lipid medications. What about the role of exercise in someone with PAD? Yeah, so, you know, there's not many things out there that help actually improve the patient's walking distance, that, re that helps treat the actual intermittent claudication. And a, an exercise program has been shown to be very effective. Now, the thing here is that it has to be a supervised exercise program. And what that means is that it's basically, they usually go to like a rehab center, the same places that do cardiac rehab or the same places that do these exercise programs. And so there is a exercise prescription that a physician would write. And so it's basically, you know, we're going to walk this much at this pace, this many times a week. 
and you go there and somebody kind of coaches you and, and encourages you in that process, push yourself, things like that. Now you might, it, you might, the downside is that, you know, a, it's gotta be supervised. So you might say, well, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it at home. <laughs> Nothing, not a single study that I'm aware of, of an unsupervised exercise program has shown significant benefits versus this, you know, um, versus uh, this, the, the, uh, especially versus the supervised, but even I think, you know, versus nothing, there's not much difference. There's a huge placebo effect that happens in PAD studies anyway. So, you know, so the, it's really can't, it, you know, just saying, okay, I'm going to just do some exercise on my own. It's never been shown to work. And so it's only the supervised exercise programs that have been shown to work. The downside of the supervised exercise programs, of course, is that they're not cheap to do. And unfortunately, and I don't know why, but uh, insurance companies are very inconsistent on how well they cover these supervised exercise programs. So huh. it, it is an effective therapy, but it's not one that many patients are consistent with or choose to pay for. And so a patient who would undergo an exercise prescription, are they going to be able to walk normally or, you know, or is it incremental benefits or what, what is the expectation yeah, for, for an exercise program. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah. So there are incremental benefits. It's not, it, the disease doesn't go away. Okay. It's still atherosclerosis. We haven't done anything with an exercise program to change the atherosclerotic plaque. What we're actually doing is conditioning the muscles better. It actually helps promote collateral blood flow, some things like that. So it, it's not a cure, but it is to help them basically walk farther, longer, harder without symptoms. But eventually they will get to a point still where demand outpaces supply and they'll get some chest pain. Or I mean, not chest pain, thinking back to the cardiac model, uh, but they, <laughs> will get, they will get the leg pain in their muscles. And so it's not a cure, but it is definitely a, a, a therapeutic mechanism to improve their quality of life. Okay. So when I heard the description of the typical presentation of a patient with PAD or intermittent claudication, it, it wasn't what I would call lab rich. There wasn't a lot of labs that we're following. Um, it, perhaps maybe an ABI we might monitor, but what are the other things that we monitor or how do we follow a patient throughout their progression of the disease who has peripheral arterial disease? So yeah, so I think some of the other monitoring has to go back to kind of a little bit of our previous discussion about risk factors. And so, you know, you know, risk factor reduction and risk factor management is critically important. So, you know, everybody with PAD who can tolerate it, you know, should probably get a high intensity statin. And so we expect to see a 50% reduction in their LDL, you know, blood pressure, you know, we expect these patients to have a controlled blood pressure. So you should be monitoring their blood pressure and using appropriate medications to do that. Um, ACE inhibitors are awesome drugs for that, by the way, because in the HOPE trial of patients with atherosclerotic disease, it was the PAD patients who actually had the highest magnitude of benefit. If they smoke, stop smoking. That's not really a monitoring parameter, but at least educating on it every time we see them. And so let's see, dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes. You know, unfortunately to date, I'm not aware of a study that's actually shown tighter control of blood glucose helps help changes these macrovascular events. It does things so like neuropathies and say, so which can be complicated by PAD, but if patients have diabetes, you want to control their diabetes for other reasons. But, you know, it'll be interesting to also see it eventually if the SGLT2 inhibitors 
provide benefit in uh, PAD like they have in coronary artery disease patients, regardless of their diabetes status. So that's, that'll be interesting to, to, to watch. And, you know, we can, we can hope that they provide a benefit. One of the, I, I think the endpoints that we are very interested in, in uh, clinical trials that we follow intensely is MACE. And, and now with PAD, I guess now an, an acronym called MAIL. I was wondering if you could talk about what are what are those endpoints? What are they? What are they a composite that includes, and, and why are they important? Yeah, and it's really great because it's a great question because it's I think sometimes it's misunderstood, right? So patients with PAD rarely die of PAD, right? <laughs> it's and so what do they die of? Well, they die of meat a lot of times of MI and stroke, and you might say, well, legs, head, heart, you know. And so remember, it goes back to the fact that it's a systemic disease. And so if you have atherosclerosis in your peripheral arteries, guess what? You probably have it in your, in your, in your, in your, in your if you have atherosclerosis in your peripheral arteries, guess what? You probably have it in your cerebral arteries. You probably have it in your coronary arteries. May not be symptomatic, but the atherosclerosis is probably there, right? It doesn't discriminate across vascular beds. And so what kills patients with PAD is MIs and strokes. And so, right, so when we talk about MACE, really, and, and you know, there's a couple different ways that MACE can be defined, but I think the most common, Zach, you can agree or disagree here, would be cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke. Okay. To me, that's the most common MACE outcome mm -hmm. I've seen. I mean, some people will put in revascularization and things like that for cardiac and stuff, but you know, usually it's CV death, uh, MI, and stroke. And you might say, well, why does that affect a PAD patient? Because it's a marker of atherosclerosis in your other vessels. Now, an outcome that, as you mentioned, in a new acronym, many of us may not be familiar with is, is MAIL. You know, I used to think as a guy, I'm, I'm an adverse outcome. Um, <laughs> but, you know, MAIL, major adverse limb events. So that actually, this is, is specific, excuse me, for, pay, for PAD. And what this typically is, is the onset of acute limb or critical ischemia, okay? And so these may be patients who end up getting the, this, the, the ruptured atherosclerotic plaque in their legs, patients who might need, uh, which usually leads to some type of immediate procedure, whether it be revascularization or fibrinolytic therapy, and uh, as well as amputations in that, you know. And amputations, you know, once again, most patients don't die from a, an amputation, but can you think of something that impacts a patient's quality of life more than yeah. their foot? Yeah. Right? I mean, think of how much, how dramatically that changes what they can now not do, right? Correct, yeah. Um, and so it's a big quality of life issue. It doesn't happen very often. You know, maybe 2% of patients with PAD end up getting an amputation in a five-year period, but it's, it's a big quality of life thing. Um, yeah, if you're one of the two percent, I mean that's yeah, a major exactly. impact on your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation, and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. I want to thank Dr. Paul Dovish one more time for joining us today, and look for future podcasts on PAD where we'll be talking about the, some of the clinical outcome data with the new landmark trials. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes 
access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.